Hello everyone. Before we get started, this is a warning that we use adult language and interesting themes this episode. It's probably not suitable for everyone, but who am I to tell you what to do? Enjoy! There are stories being told by people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. Welcome to Live Patrol, an edutainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history. It mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you can learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or at the circus to astound your family, friends, or Pagliotti. The headlines are ear-catching, that-can't-be-true factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week, there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Michael. My name is Brenna. And the topic this week is people just people just people just yeah just like any people once like anyone they could have pulses they could not you know they could do they have to be real i have to change some of my stories (laughs) (laughs) all right well um how did you feel about uh doing this topic this week this is going to be very dry yeah you know the thing about people is their people while interesting very boring while interesting in order to stay factual about them very boring <laughs> all right so you ready to just get right yeah, in? yeah uh, give me the headlines okay number one one of the first real life superheroes also did real life porn <laughs> oh he's he's making an icky the, face the face <laughs> i made was when you like Bite right into a lemon. That's exactly. You're making a, like an ooh, mmm, sour. That's a sour headline for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go again. Number two, the man who taught us tomatoes don't cause leprosy. What? That's. I hate your headlines. That's not. That one actually, I'm starting to realize that's badly written. That's terrible. <laughs> I probably do that. Don't we? Hold on. Hold on. Okay. How about okay? Here, let me. Let me oh, you're. Right uh, let, yeah, let's rewrite this on the fly. <laughs> well, to make it better for you, I'm. I'm trying to help you, bro. Are you ready for the third one, or do you even care at this point? Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. Give me the third one. Number three, the bravest woman in America has a yacht club named after her. What's the second one again? The man who taught us tomatoes don't cause leprosy. One more time. <laughs> one more time that one mm-hmm. the man who taught us tomatoes don't cause leprosy yeah which is why i said do you want me to kind of rephrase this well if here the, if... i'm gonna i'm gonna say something can i say something different then Fine. <laughs> antoine augustin parmentier taught us tomatoes don't cause leprosy there now it's specific mm-hmm. Well, I feel like that's not his name, so. <laughs> uh, and the, the, wait, the first one was the first superheroes, also a porn star? Yeah, one of the first real life superheroes also did real life porn. One of the first or the first? Okay, when you, the, the problem is he's like the first written about thing is what I'm talking about. Anyways, it doesn't matter, Michael. You're supposed to guess if this is true or not. 
They are not lies. Well, one of them is, but... <laughs> Should we have done a disclaimer on this? About what? The porn thing? Uh-huh. Well, I don't really get into it. But I'm if about is... to. <laughs> yeah, well, you want to do your... Okay, you know what? We'll do a disclaimer after because you messed up me and then... Being super... It's the whole conundrum yeah, we'll with, 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 with Superman, like... Hey, when... can I just say that you are the worst because you are totally fishing, by the way? Yeah, sure. <laughs> when Superman comes, wouldn't it kill whatever's in the his way? His way? Oh, you mean like if he... If, if Superman came in the direction of an enemy? Or oh, saying, that's even better. Or are you saying Oh my that... god, that is a superpower. Uh, I'm saying... <laughs> he if... just comes on him and they die. If he, yeah, if he comes with a partner, he would kill that oh, person. Well, why? Why Why does this come, like, necess- necessarily bad? Like, he's not necessarily made of things that kill people. Yeah, it but... It could just be necessarily he strong super, cum. He, he yeah, has superhuman maybe. strength. He can flex but his he has superhuman to... cum, which means the cum is just so much more... I... Violent. Violent. No. Virulent? Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah, he has tons of swimmers. Yeah, they're just like they're, it's like come times ten all the time because he's he's man times ten. Actually, now, now I'm thinking about it. What if he peed it at an assailant? Wouldn't that also have had the chance to maim them like a laser beam? Just... He just flexes his sphincter and it comes out at like a thousand miles an hour. Clark Kent peed on me and it blew a hole through my it stomach. Rip, it ripped my arm off. <laughs> It was like a power washer. <laughs> Superman has power washer. <laughs> power washer pee. penis. <laughs> power washer pee. <laughs> Congratulations. We have not even made it into a single one of these stories. Why did you write these? <laughs> They're not even that this, the this boring episode and we already started off with trying to write in Superman, Superman canon. Coming. I have a note about that, by the way, <laughs> later. Okay, fine. Give me that second one with the dude and the, the stupid tomato thing. Are you sure? I... Whatever. <laughs> okay. Number two was, Antoine Augustin Parmentier taught us tomatoes don't cause leprosy. Antoine Augustin Parmentier which I'm only going to say that wow, that's the last time I say his whole name because... But I need to hear the headline one more time. No, you already picked it. You don't ever have to listen to it ever again. <laughs> you can hear it in the edits. Among many things was an army pharmacist for the French during the Seven Years' War from 1754 to 1763. Yes, he served nine years in the Seven Years' War. <laughs> Seems weird, but we don't we don't do French stuff here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's just gloss over that. We don't we don't care. This isn't a war podcast. This isn't a this isn't a ooh smart people talking about smart things podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he was captured at this time by the Prussians and forced to do one of the worst things a Frenchman could have been asked to do at this time. Uh. 
So okay, well, so okay, you were make flatbread. You've been sent off to war, wherever this took place. I don't know. I know the Prussians were in it and the French were in it, and uh, it was one of those wars that at the end they're just like, okay, good, good, good. Everybody just goes away, and every, all the POWs go wherever they came from. Like it's just one of those jolly good. We did a war. <laughs> um, so you're a you're a you're an army pharmacist, and you got captured by the Prussians. And you're French. What is the worst thing that they could make you do ever? Uh, amputations. Yeah, no, that would be bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, if they, they, what did you want me to say? They took you were like, cool, we fought, we stole hey, we the got, French's Everyone, we Fire, got a doctor! We got a doctor! <laughs> I'm just a pharmacist. I Everybody's just, like, oh man, I've been waiting weeks to get this leg lopped off. I just do penicillin. <laughs> no, we got a doctor. He specializes in cutting things off. No, Michael, you weren't even close because it's even worse. Eat potatoes. Well, I hate you. (laughs) Wait, so potatoes prevent leprosy? That is not any... No. One, no. And also, no. That's not the story. And also, no, that's not even what the headline said. I know, but I'm trying to get ahead of you. Because the the headline said tomatoes. (laughs) Yeah, because you're upset now. Because you realize... It's the wrong Edo. <laughs> no, I knew it was wrong Edo. I just thought this was your lie and you sw- swapped potato for tomato. Did you pick this because you thought it was the lie or did you pick it because it was the truth? No, I picked it because you rewrote it on the fly and the only way you're going to be able to do that is if, it, if it's the truth. <laughs> That's honestly the reason I picked this one. <laughs> That's right. Because although... <laughs> Why would you start with like, that? <laughs> I read it like I wrote it like I read it right into <laughs> I didn't know we were gonna have this whole huge pause about this about potatoes. Because I'm gonna cut it to say so potatoes don't cause leprosy. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my god. Sorry. Sorry guys, I'm trying to fight the <laughs> big edit over here. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. So, because, okay, so (laughs) let's reiterate. Um, Yes, he was made to eat potatoes while he was a POW for the Prussians. I feel like that there's worse things than that. Yeah, I would say so too now, knowing that potatoes are like my top one favorite food. Although France had been introduced to potatoes by the Spaniards in the 1500s, the French saw the potato as nothing better than feed for pigs and even believed they caused leprosy. The potato had actually been officially banned by French Parliament in 1748. No vodka there. Oh, no. (laughs) When the war was over, Parmentier was freed and made his way back to Paris in 1763, and he continued his life as a pharmacist, pioneering medicine and focusing specifically on nutrition. It wasn't until nine years later in 1772 when Parmentier would consider how he came out of prison unscathed by the horrible effects of potatoes and would start looking at them as more than hog feed. He's like, oh, man. These prison. prevent leprosy. I was in prison once. I ate a lot of potatoes. In fact, it's weird. I have all of my limbs... I didn't grow a third arm, 
and nothing's weird about me, and I ate a lot of potatoes. That same year, he proposed the potato as a good form of nutrition for patients suffering from dysentery, that's the illness where you basically poo yourself to death, for a contest put on by the Academy of Benzazon, oh, Be Benzazon, of which he won the prize. There's a lot of French stuff in this. Okay. Anyways, he won because he was like, this could be good food for people who are pooing themselves to death. And they're like, hmm, yes, we see what you say. <laughs> this helped lead the Paris Faculty of Medicine to finally declare potatoes suitable for human consumption. <laughs> but that didn't make people forget their prejudices. To the French public, potatoes were still gross, and not even starving peasants would eat them. How do you feel about that? Boo. What's your favorite potato food? Mashed potatoes <clears throat> with gravy. Do you just want the gravy, though? Sculpted into a volcano. <laughs> you didn't let me finish. <laughs> um, for, the, for the listeners at home, he is famous for his mashed potatoes and gravy Sculptures. volcanoes. <laughs> I like you call them sculptures. They're just They're volcanoes. Art. <laughs> you should make one. And I'm so tired good. of pretending they're not. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Screw it. Okay. <laughs> Parmentier decided to become a champion for the potato and began doing everything he could think of to public publicize the edibility and nutrition of potatoes. What? He's, he's, he's walking up the, or he's running up the stairs to, to the, to the Philadelphia, uh, um, uh, uh, uh building. <laughs> oh, I see. This is a, like Rocky. I'm sorry, this he, is a Rocky. Yeah, and, and he has potatoes in his, he's, he's a champion potatoes. for potatoes. He's, he's jogging up the steps and he's got potatoes. <laughs> You're so dumb. He's a champion for potatoes. He is, indeed. <laughs> he's a knight in shining potato. <laughs> okay. Let's get back on to what we were talking about, which was potatoes. He invited notable figures such as Benjamin Franklin and Antoine Lavoisier to dinner parties where all of the dishes were made with potatoes. He presented bouquets of potato flowers to King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, one of which she wore in her hat, which is apparently a big deal, but... I don't know why, but apparently everybody on every website's like, and they put it in their hats and they wore it on their little shirts, and it's great. Good for them. Would you wear a potato on your head? Maybe I'd wear a potato anywhere <laughs> that potato wanted to be worn on me. <laughs> oh, I also amend my previous. Uh, latkes are also pretty dope. I think that's actually probably my favorite potato food. So. Latkes are <clears throat> great. Latkes, and I just looked up... Uh, a recipe for lefse, for uh, it's a it's a Norwegian potato pancake, which I had when I was young, and I want to make that. It's so good. Anyways, we are big fans of potato here. <laughs> we had vodka before this. You probably couldn't tell because we're so good at not showing. <laughs> well, we are part peasant, so. <laughs> <laughs> what else, what is the other part of us? Uh, 
sounded like you're telling us that we're part muggle. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because I like a potato. Because because oh. I like me a potato. <laughs> oh oh, I I like potatoes. <laughs> oh potatoes. <laughs> Your bangers and mash. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, this is probably just a big hit on the English. <laughs> the English and the Irish and <laughs> this is they just the French are just sitting there like you're disgusting. <laughs> and the Russians, my god, everybody lives off potatoes. In 1781, Louis XVI gave Parmentier a large plot of land in Sablon, which he turned into a potato patch. Although at this time, it had been nine years since potatoes had been declared edible, people were still distrustful. According to a Farmer's Almanac article, Parmentier hired guards to guard the patch night and day and ordered them to let anyone they caught stealing potatoes to go ahead and do it, and if they tried to bribe the guards, the guards should take the bribes, no matter how small. Parmentier believed that if something seemed very protected, people would think it was valuable and would be more likely to steal it. And to him, a stolen potato was a potato in the hands of someone who probably didn't care about potatoes before. So he had all the guards stationed out to make it seem like it was valuable. Mm -hmm. I I did read about this, yeah. Yeah. You you create uh, an artificial scarcity in order to make it really exclusive. Okay, we'll call it that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In an attempt to help stabilize Paris's food supply, Parmentier taught at the Free School of Bakery how to make flour from potatoes and thus potato bread. Another thing I like to eat. Bread? Yes. <laughs> if we could just get potato and bread to be like best friends forever, I think that's my whole life. It's just carbs and starch, carbs and starch. <laughs> But although he will likely be most remembered for his work with the tuber, his work ranged from finding new uses for nut flowers and mushrooms to corn and Jerusalem artichokes. Basically, his life was dedicated to keeping people from starving. And according to the Chateau Versailles website, King Louis XVI had even said, One day... Oh, wait, hold on. One day France will thank you for having found the bread for the poor. Which I can only hope he would have replied, Well, King... Somebody had to, and it wasn't going to be you, but I digress. Yay! Seems like it should be somebody else's <clears throat> job to find how to feed their people, but okay. <laughs> he was appointed Inspector General of the Health Service by Napoleon in 1800, and in 1805, he established the first mandatory smallpox vaccination, another champion effort for France's poor. Upon his death in 1813, Parmentier was laid to rest in the Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. Paris. It's Paris. I could just say Paris. I'm here. You could just say Paris. Yeah. Once you start going, it's hard to stop. (laughs) Where a circle of potato flowers were planted around his grave, and to this day he is remembered by French citizens who cover his tomb in potatoes. Yeah, because the potato saved people. Good for him. I know this was a people story, but really it was a potato story all along. (laughs) (laughs) You snuck food in here. No, what? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what do you think of that? That was like uplifting. Yeah, actually, that wasn't that wasn't so dry. <clears throat> well, that's because it was potatoes. Yeah. Okay. Well, which is which is your favorite? And you can save that for last. You just do them whatever. Okay, I'll want. do the bravest woman <laughs> next. <laughs> yeah, I like how you just go. Psh, 
whatever. Just do whatever you want. I don't even care. Why do I even have to be here anymore? <laughs> You're so soggy all the time. Soggy, soggy. Okay. The bravest woman in America has a yacht club named after her. So this person lived from 1842 to 1911. And, Michael, what kind of job do you think the bravest woman in America would have had at that time? Uh, 1911, uh, uh, a woman of industry. She's a welder in a chip manufacturing plant. That's a really boring job. I, Many people do that job all the time. Yeah, well, but I mean, not, like, not okay. 1911. <laughs> I would I would hazard to guess that more people were doing it then than like in previous not years. Not women. But okay, so doing a normal job for a woman makes her the bravest woman? <laughs> I don't know. For the time, yeah. Okay, okay. That's fair. That Whatever. Sure. <laughs> Let's continue. Well, what job was it? We're going to... It's almost like yeah, I'm about I know. To tell you. So just tell me. <laughs> Ida Wally Zarada Lewis, better known as Ida Lewis, was born in Newport, Rhode Island, in 1842, as one of four children of Captain Hosea Lewis and Ida Wally Zaradia Wiley. In 1854, when Ida was just 12 years old, her father was transferred out of the Revenue Marine and became the lighthouse keeper of Lime Rock Light, the lighthouse near Lime Rock, Newport. Nice. So she was a lighthouse keeper. That makes her brave somehow. (laughs) However, only four months into his new station, he suffered a stroke and was paralyzed. This meant he would no longer be able to tend the light, but instead of being released from duty and having another lightkeeper take over, Ida, with help from her mother, took over the light's care. Go ahead, say something else that you're going to have to regret. This is the plot to Anchorman 2, I think. This isn't a movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't remember. We have Anchorman 2, and we I have not watched it since the first time I see him. Yeah, know he ends up about it. getting blind and then being a lighthouse keeper. <laughs> that, well, that's not a good thing for a blind person to do. <laughs> no, it's, that's the whole joke. I'm pretty... That's the whole gag. <laughs> no, Michael, what I'm saying is that's a bad idea for him. <laughs> Can we shut up? Shut up. Just shut up. Along with keeping the lamp oiled, the wick trimmed, the reflectors polished, and her other lighthouse duties, Ida was also in charge of getting her younger siblings to school every weekday morning, which involved rowing them on her heavy rowboat into Newport and also rowing them back home. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't, I would have just let my siblings go feral or something. I would not be taking them to school. I'd be like, ah, sucks. I guess you have to swim. (laughs) This bus ride sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I was late because my stupid sister didn't row fast enough. No, because the bus driver couldn't row fast enough. <laughs> That's We're just making jokes of how siblings suck. <laughs> I would just been like, oh, I'm not rowing fast enough. Just push him out the boat. <laughs> just, I don't know. I saw him go to school. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> now, obviously rowing a rowboat isn't what gets people calling you brave. Nor does oil in a lamp. But another duty of a lighthouse keeper is spotting those in danger and aiding them any way they can. And for Ida, she was becoming quite the wiki and also quite good at helping out. In 1854, Ida was credited with her first rescue where she pulled four men out of the water after capsizing their sailboat. She was only 12 years old. So yeah, she was a lighthouse keeper, Michael. 
God. Continue. <laughs> One of her most famous life-saving missions was the rescue of two soldiers who were attempting to row their way through a snowstorm to Fort Adams, which was across the harbor. Ida's mother had spotted the small boat and told Ida, who didn't even bother to put on a coat and shoes, before she flew out the door and flung her boat into the water with her little brother in tow. Although the 14-year-old boy who was guiding the soldiers was swept away, Ida and her brother were able to save the two soldiers who thanked her with a gold watch and $218, which they collected from the soldiers at the fort. So that was nice. So she held four men for ransom at a fort. Okay, so this is a different story. Oh. This was two soldiers she pulled out of two the water. Sol- she, she held two soldiers for ransom. <laughs> she's not a pirate. Because <laughs> that would be brave. She's she's just a wiki. That's like, eh. A pirate. A pirate woman in the 1800s? Now that would be brave. We're going to get so much backlash, you know, that if you keep making jokes <laughs> like this. <laughs> Just saying, like, a welder would also, like, a welder on a ship would have been, like, way more brave than a lighthouse keeper. You're such an asshole. Yeah, I know. We're going to have to cut a ton of this. We're going to have to cut so much because I'm going to be, people are going to be like, wow, how can you be with such a sexist? <laughs> like, I swear it's a bit. I'm going to literally be that person that's like, I swear it's a bit. <laughs> There is even a poem on the U.S. Coast Guard's website honoring her bravery in this situation. And I'm not going to read that. I also don't it's, have it here. I bet you it sounds pretty boring. It's... Because the Navy guess, wrote it. Yeah, I was about to say, it's <laughs> exactly what... Well, I mean, the Coast Guard. Coast Guard, so sorry. They, they might be a little more, like, <sighs> poetic. Yeah, you're right. They have lots of time. <laughs> they have more time to... I don't know. It's probably going to cut too. <laughs> Brain flower crowns or whatever. Eventually, Ida became quite the celebrity, drawing the ire of other women who supposedly would criticize her career with comments such as, It's unladylike to row a boat! To which Ida purportedly responded, None but a donkey would consider it unfeminine to save lives. And I love that. <laughs> Get em, Ida! Over the course of 54 years on Lime Rock, Ida was credited with saving 18 lives, but because she did not keep track of her accomplishments, the number could have been as high as 25, with the last known rescue taking place when she was... How old do you think? How old do you think 73. Last... Okay, well, you're 10 years off. So, she was 83? 63. <laughs> you you went high, man. But people didn't live that long, Michael. <laughs> Actually, I don't, I don't remember how old she was when she died. She was awarded a silver medal by the Life-Saving Benevolent Association of New York, had a parade held for her in Newport, and was even presented with a velvet-cushioned mahogany rowboat at one point. They, like, went all out and made her this whole thing. And, God, yeah, people were just, like, fawning over this woman who saves people. And all she ever does is just, like, I don't know, man. I see people go down, and I go out, and I pull them out. (laughs) I just do my job. (laughs) She was called the bravest woman in America by national publications and would go on to meet President Ulysses S. Grant Vice President Schuyler Colfax, General William Tecumseh Sherman, which is always a fun one to say, uh, while also being used as an example by the famous women's suffrage movement figure Elizabeth Cady Stanton for the inherent strength of women. Yep, Ida Luce was quite the hero, and when she passed due to a stroke on October 24, 1911, 
All the bells in Newport Harbor tolled for her, and flags were ordered at half-staff to commemorate her as a Rhode Island hero. Nice. Yeah. In 1924, Lime Rock was officially rechristened Ida Lewis Rock, and the lighthouse is now Ida Lewis Lighthouse, marking the only time in history a lighthouse keeper was honored in such a way. And, before you get me on about the headline, the lighthouse is now home to the Ida Lewis Yacht Club, so don't get your boat in a bind. (laughs) She continues to be commemorated to this day in various ways, including being the first woman to have a road in Arlington National Cemetery named after her in 2018. Is she buried there? No. Oh, that's weird. (laughs) They just named the road after her. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's weird. (laughs) Well, they have a bunch of roads named for people that were buried in Arlington. Don't tell me to name three. I don't know if Yeah, I was about to say, like, do you have any examples? <laughs> yeah, Michael, thank you for belittling this one, the, my one female, okay? <laughs> I hope you have a lady. I have two. Good. Actually, okay, good. Shh. <laughs> don't tell me. All right. Two ladies. I have two ladies. <laughs> one for each of my huge balls. <laughs> What's your last story? Oh, my last story you you care to ask. Um, so, last one. One of the first real-life superheroes also did real-life porn. In San Diego in the early 1970s, there was one man tasked with keeping the streets safe. Stanley. <sighs> okay, well, I don't have to tell the story. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not Stanley, guys. It's not Stanley. That guy just wasn't this one. <laughs> Well, maybe not the streets, and maybe no one had tasked him with it, but there was definitely one man, and that man was... The dude? Captain... Ahab? Sticky. Captain Sticky was one of the first documented real-life superheroes, a term used for those of us who conceal our identities in our free time with costumes and secret identities and do our best to go out and make the world a better place. What was his superpower? (laughs) (laughs) you'll see (laughs) yes one of us oh me i am the glorious gnome protector of all gardens and porches you can attest what's captain sticky do (laughs) for captain sticky or richard allen pesta the world was a better place when corporations weren't trying to take advantage of consumers he began his crime-fighting career in 1973 at the ripe age of 28 after he had retired from the lucrative corrugated fiberglass industry in National City. He chose the moniker Captain Sticky and began wearing blue sparkly tights and a red and silver cape. Later, he added in a Lincoln Continental customized with a bubble top and flashing lights he called the Sticky Mobile. Okay. At least he didn't lean to the sticky thing and get a brown persona. <laughs> brown that you think is so sticky (laughs) it's the whole joke what's brown and sticky a stick and then there's another joke and like the punchline of that one is poo yeah you wiped yeah i get it okay (laughs) (laughs) his good deeds which included getting the police to start an investigation into the abuses of nursing homes caught him enough attention to appear on the 1970s show about real people called that's right real people that's the oh my god, that's actually what it's called? That's, the title is Real People, and they oh. had real people on there. I thought it was, that's right. Real people? <laughs> no, 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 no. God, you're just on one today, aren't you? God. 
According to Mark Evanier, who worked on comics and had met Captain Sticky at San Diego Comic-Con multiple times, there was even supposed to be a Captain Sticky comic put out by Marvel, but was canceled when Pester realized they expected him to front the whole bill. <laughs> but Captain Sticky had a possibly stickier side. Do you want to guess why he chose to call himself Captain Sticky? Because anything you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. It's because he loved peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, obviously, well, silly. <laughs> He's like a little kid character. That's a reason <laughs> to call yourself a name. Anyways, back to the sticky stuff. According to IMDb, he played Superman in a skit porno called The Sex O'Clock News in 1985 in a character called tons of fun and a women's prison porno called caged fury <laughs> so he did get to play superman so i wonder what uh what uh, his uh, the old jizz situation was for him <laughs> yeah this is the sticky turn we were waiting for According to the Real Heroes archive, Pesta had left his caped crusader persona almost completely by the wayside in the early 1990s when he had decided to start what was called the Real Man's Midlife Crisis Tour of Thailand, where he would be offering what he called drinking, debauchery, and fun stuff. The Bangkok special. <laughs> okay, that's a little catchier. <laughs> and not surprisingly, the Thai government forced him to shut it down. This probably shouldn't have been surprising, as in 1986, a year after his first official porn credit, his old town San Diego home was raided and a director was arrested for arrested for seven counts of pandering for shooting a pornographic flick. At this time, filming pornography was legal, but paying individuals to perform sex was not. You know, everyone just has to swear they're volunteers or something. I don't know. The law says you can film pornography, mm -hmm. but you cannot pay people to have sex. Mm -hmm. So you pay them a consulting fee to look at all the rooms in your house. <laughs> and if and they then afterwards, <laughs> after they've seen the house, you know, then you just set up a camera and you leave and you tell them to go nuts. <laughs> I know how to, I know how to write these contracts. Well, great. No, you're going to be... I don't think those laws are a thing anymore. I don't know. I don't know what the laws are. I have no um, idea what the laws in San Diego are regarding pornography. <laughs> or paying for sex. Well, I guess it still probably isn't. Okay. I okay. have no idea. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, Captain Sticky insisted he did not know what it was about and didn't know anything illegal was taking place. Fast forward to now, it seems unlikely. Considering his... Um, Many credits in porn. He probably knew what was going on. <laughs> Overall, people remember the peanut butter-loving big guy as a fun character, with his unfortunate passing occurring in December of 2003 from complications with bypass surgery. He died in Bangkok, Thailand at the age of 57, and his ashes were scattered at sea. So, um, yeah, okay, we kind of glossed over it, but he actually did some really good work for, like, showing the nursing homes. He was doing the whole, the, uh, what's the, what's the lawyer show? Better Call Saul. He was doing the whole, like, bringing light to how nursing homes are, uh, predatory on people, as well as many corporations. So he did some good work. 
Um, he just had another side of him that was a little bit stickier. Uh, I'm going to link the photos in the show notes. show notes, but there's a photo of him posing with Stan Lee at Comic-Con, as well as a photo of the Lincoln Continental that he outfitted with his little bubble top and everything. Did he have a layer? No, he didn't have... He, he just lived in... He just lived in an apartment. Uh, in a house, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, like, kind of rich. <laughs> okay, well... Ugh. Yeah, poor baby. Poor sweet baby Michael. Okay, so my headlines are all the person's name... And then something you would ask and or tell them. Oh, so just because you're all organized. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound very headline-y. George Formby. Tell me a joke or get out of my foxhole. Constance Tipper. Why is my boat sinking? Lieutenant Susie Ann Cuddy. How do I use this satellite? How am I supposed to know if any of this is a lie? That doesn't make any sense. Because they would be able to answer them. Okay, what, okay, tell me again how these are, it's the person's name and the person's what? Person's name and then something you would ask and or tell them, and the lie is something that they wouldn't be able to answer. Okay, so you would ask them a question, they should be able to answer it? Mm-hmm. So, okay, what was the first one? And can you not go so fast, my god? George Formby, tell me a joke or get out of my foxhole. So, he should be a military person? <laughs> or comedian military person? <laughs> Okay, continue. Constance Tipper. Okay. Why is my boat sinking? So, Constance Tipper, she should be able to tell you why your boat is sinking? She's a boat engineer? Lieutenant Susan Ann Cuddy. Okay. How do I use this satellite? She supposedly should be a satellite scientist person in the military. I don't know. This is incredibly hard to... Uh, let's go with Lieutenant Susan. That was my line! Lieutenant Susan Ann Cuddy. How do I use this satellite? Do you know when women were first allowed to serve in the U.S. Armed Forces? Or, want to take a guess? Oh, it has to be, like, the 19... Oh, well, do you mean serve like they could be, like, uh, medical stuff, too, huh? Enlisted soldiers, not... Like, okay, enlisted soldiers? Not, not, uh, not Not like staffs. Yeah. Not like, you know, okay, that's gotta be like the 1990s. Actually, never. (laughs) 1917. 1917 what? The U.S. Navy allowed women to enlist. The first was Loretta Perfectus Walsh, who became the first female chief petty officer. Oh yeah, I forgot they flew planes and stuff. My bad. We, we flew planes. I'm a female too. In 1918... (laughs) The Marine Corps allowed women to serve in clerical duties so that men could be sent over to fight on the ground in World War One. Okay, so that stuff counts. Well, clerical duties, like, technically, I think you could be up to the rank of officer while you're doing paperwork and stuff. Also in 1918, the Coast Guard enlisted Myrtle R. Hazard as an electrician. Fast forward to 1948, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act was signed into law allowing women to serve as a permanent regular member of the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, or Air Force. While there are a lot of really badass women to have served, one is definitely more interesting than the others. Susan Ann Cuddy was born in 1915 in Los Angeles to Dosan Chang Ho and Helen An. 
What's interesting about Dosen Chang Ho and Helen On, I hear you saying? Well, I mean, I didn't ask, but yeah, go ahead, tell me. They were the first married couple to emigrate to the U.S. from Korea in 1902. Oh, that's nice. Susan went to Los Angeles City College, where she was the player manager for the women's baseball team. She went on to study at San Diego State and graduated in 1940. Oh, nice. Quick, tell me everything you know about the WAVES Act. Okay, I'll start. It stands for the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. It stands for the Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service, obviously, Michael. Okay, well, it was signed by Franklin Roosevelt in July 1942. It allowed women to serve in the U.S. Navy on an emergency basis. This was supposed to free up male personnel for duties at sea. Back to Susan, who enlisted in the Waves Act as soon as it was open. Guess what happened next? Uh, she actually went out to sea instead. She was denied. Most likely um, due to her Korean heritage. Well, that's messed up. While only Japanese were being forced into internment camps, there was a general distrust for anyone from the oh, Orient at the time. Oh, yeah. That's messed up. Also, the internment camps were messed up. The whole thing is stupid. She persevered and was accepted into the Navy and became a navigation trainer. She worked her way up, becoming the first female gunnery officer in the Navy, on her way to becoming a lieutenant. Did you catch that? Uh, she became a lieutenant. She was the first lieutenant in the armed forces, and she was of Korean ancestry. That's so cool. Anyways, Lieutenant Cuddy went on to work at the National Security Agency in Washington, D.C. during the Cold War. She went on to oversee a 300-person think tank working on the Russian sector. She worked with the Department of Defense until 1959, when she went on to be home with her family in California, helping run the family restaurant until 1990. How close were you paying attention? She worked with the defense, and then she went to the restaurant. She passed away in 2015 at the age of... She's... She was 100. She died She died at 100. She was 100 years old? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's cool. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot. This was the lie. While, du- while Lieutenant Cuddy probably knew how satellites worked and maybe even how to use one, she was not, re- uh, she was not a trainer for them. Great. Yeah. While working in the Russian sector, she had a lot of exposure to satellites, but she probably didn't know how how to program them, how to work them, just okay. So orbits and stuff. I was waiting the whole time for that, and actually what was really cool about her was, like, she's the first woman to do all these cool stuff and the first Korean woman to do a lot of this stuff. Yeah, she was a badass. Yeah, she was a super badass, but you made me wait for, like, this science thing that never came. Yeah, all mine are like that. That's what people are. They they surprise you in <laughs> extraordinary and also very boring ways. Every time you wait for them to play with a satellite, they just do other cool stuff instead. <laughs> George Formby, tell me a joke or get out of my foxhole. Constance Tipper, why is my boat sinking? Sue George. George Formby, tell me a joke or get out of my foxhole. George Formby was the eldest of seven children in Wigan, Lancaster, Lancashire, in 1904. George was sent to become an apprentice jockey at the age of seven. He rode his first professional race when he was 10, weighing it at 55 pounds. He continued jockeying until his father died when he was 17. He decided he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. Any guesses what his father did for work? Hold on. Okay. So, he's a jockey. The apprentice jockey. Like horse jockey? Yes. He's a little guy. He rides horses. 
and wants to follow his father's footsteps now, which is not horse steps. His okay. father was not a horse. <laughs> I just want a clarification here. <laughs> okay. He wants to be uh, a big, big... He wants to be the tank in in a uh, <laughs> military thing. <laughs> he wants to be a tank. Well, I'm thinking, okay, I'm thinking more like a video game tank where he wants to be the biggest, strongest guy with the biggest gun. No, he wants <laughs> he wants to grow a set of two pairs of treads and roll around a battlefield. Just, Just like, like his that. father. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a comedian and a stage actor. Oh, so that kid wants to be a loser? That's so sad. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just a joke. It's a joke. Please. Using his father's material, he did really poorly. <laughs> he used his dad's material and it sucked. That's so sad. But daddy, I always thought you were funny. <laughs> During his first few years, he bought a ukulele off of one of his fellow stage acts and got very proficient with it on stage. He married Beryl Ingham in September of 1924. In 19- Yay. <laughs> In 1932, he recorded his first album with the Jake Hilton Band. The A-side was called... Get Out of My Foxhole. do de do <laughs> That was so close. Damn. And the B-side? It's not O-do-e-d-o. Oh. It's not backwards or anything. Oh. Well... Here, let me try to make another sound with my mouth. Om, bom, 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 bom. Chinese blues. Oh, no. <laughs> Which hasn't aged well, if that wasn't clear. Yeah, no, I don't think that's good at all. That's bad. He made his first film two years later. Quote, Boots, Boots, Boots. Launching his film career. And it was all about flip-flops. He became one of the most popular and highest paid entertainers of the British Isles when he signed his seven-movie, £100,000 yearly deal. After this contract, he signed a seven-film Columbia contract, netting him over £500,000. Wow. And then he was sent off to the war. What do you know about ENSA? It's spelled E-N-S-A? Yes. No, that's what I know about it. Oh. Well, good, because it stands for the Entertainment's National Service Association. Oh, well, of course I need that. I'm so entertaining myself. They're an organization that was started in 1939 to entertain British troops serving abroad, similar to the USO, or United Service Organization in the U.S. George Formby enlisted in ENSA in 1940, was denied the first time, but was eventually let in. Formby ended up touring Ireland to entertain troops guarding internment camps, among other things. He kept starring in movies and turning to entertain the troops. And then we get to July 1944. Now, what important battle happened in June 1944? That's not the one Captain America was in. Right, Operation Neptune. Or (laughs) the Normandy landings. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, that occurred in June. In July, the Vanguard Ensa Brigade arrived in Normandy to entertain the troops. Formby was one of the entertainers present. On to the headline. While he was in Normandy, he was supposed to perform, but German shelling had started and it was deemed too dangerous to entertain. So Formby reportedly started jumping foxhole to foxhole with his ukulele and told jokes to the troops along the way. Oh, you were kidding me. They're like getting blown up and he's like, Hey, knock knock. Okay. 
Hey, you guys, you want to hear a little ditty I just wrote? You want to hear... Ding, ding, do, ding, ding. do si do si do di <laughs> Oh, you are kidding me. I am not. Ballsy. I'm just going to say ballsy. <laughs> After the war, Formby created the song With My Little Stick of Blackpool Rock, which ended up getting banned by the BBC due to certain lyrics being unsuitable for radio. <laughs> he also filmed his final film, George and Sibby Street, which didn't do too bad at the box office, but was not very well received. It was around this time Formby took a medical leave of absence from the big screen. He contracted gastroencinitis and had a blood clot in his lung. He continued to have small roles and do comedy specials in clubs until 1960. Now, I wish the story ended here, but it doesn't. Okay, well, it's already taken the depressing downhill turn, where he probably is, like, telling people, the best time of my life was when I almost got blown up and, and my uke. And it's about to get worse. Oh, no! <laughs> Beryl, his wife, was diagnosed with cancer in 1955 and was given two years to live. Oh. Beryl started drinking heavily to dull the pain, while Formby threw himself back into work, and had developed a relationship with a schoolteacher, Pat Housen. Oh, no. Formby's last role was as Mr. Wu in Aladdin. Aladdin premiered on Christmas Eve 1960, when Formby received a phone call from Beryl's doctor saying that she was in a coma and wasn't expected to last the night. Formby went on with the play and received another call early in the morning that Beryl had died. She was cremated on December 27th, and Formby was back performing that night. He continued with the performance group until January 14th, when a cold sidelined him. He finally decided to head home and deal with his health and Beryl's affairs. Oh my god. Also, wow. He wasn't even, like, there with her. Just too busy working. On Valentine's Day 1961, Formby and Pat Housen announced their engagement. Eight days later, Formby suffered from a heart attack and was given last rites. The wedding was scheduled for May, but it didn't matter. While Formby was recuperating in the hospital, he had another heart attack on March 6th. This one killed him. His surviving will was written two weeks before his death, with most of his estate going to Housen, save for 5,000 pounds going to his valet. And, predictably, his family disputed it. His estate was valued at around 135,000 pounds. One of the previously written wills gave 5,000 to his mom and 2,500 each to his sisters. Housen proposed that these terms could be kept, but the family wanted more. This went on for four years until the matter was settled by the courts, agreeing to the terms Housen proposed. Wait, so, okay, so the the fiancé was trying to take all the rest of the stuff? Uh, the will was written to give her, to give the... He had already written a will up for her? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I gotta say, it's okay. The foxhole thing, cool. The rest of your life, yeah. Didn't, yeah, he peaked at he an early at, age. Yeah. <laughs> ugh. Ugh. You know... Whatever, man. <laughs> That's a life, I guess. <laughs> it's definitely something. <sighs> Constance Tipper. Why is my boat sinking? Constance Flig Elam was born in 1984 in southern England. She went on to study engineering at Newnham College. Basically the women's counterpart to Cambridge. The period after she graduated reads like, reads like a resume, and I'm not going to go into it super deep. 1915, joined the Metallurgical Department at the National Physical Laboratory. 1960, moved to the Royal School of Mines where she became a research assistant. In 1917, to Sir Harold Carpenter. 
1921, she was elected to the Frenchville Research Fellowship. She continued at the Royal School of Mines until 1929. She became one of the first female lecturers at Cambridge. She continued her research and teaching at Cambridge for 30 years. Tipper's wait, okay, so oh. wait. So she went to the women's version of Cambridge, and then she was and then she, so great, she decided, I'm going to teach at Cambridge. She was so good that she was teaching at Cambridge. That's good. You show them. Tipper specialized in what we would now call materials engineering. Her research with Jeffrey Ingram Taylor on aluminum crystal structures earned her the 1923 Royal Society Baccarin Medal, a medal given out to those who undertake, quote, exceptional science. Good. However, since she was a woman, she was not allowed to publicly receive the medal or even attend the ceremony. What? She can't even go to her own stuff and get the... Oh, what? But Tipper's greatest gift to engineering came during World War II. Before the USA entered the war in 1941, they had been exporting goods to Allied powers. This involved sending ships with goods across the Atlantic Ocean. In order to make the trip successful, the boats needed to be able to outmaneuver and outrun the German U-boats. The USA got a British design for these ships and were called the Liberty Ship class boats. They were mass-produced in order to save money on supplies, tooling, and labor. The first one, the SS Patrick Henry, launched on September 27, 1941. Here's the problem. These ships were breaking, and pretty catastrophically. The Liberty ships were one of the first all-welded boats. In the cold Atlantic Ocean, cracks started appearing around the welds, and would propagate inc incredibly quickly. Okay, um, I'm just now realizing you have a story about bad welds on ships, and your lady's probably going to come and fix the problem, whereas you thought, well, it would be pretty brave for a woman to come in and weld some ships on my stuff, but now I seem kind of like a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but yeah, she's also like super brainy too, yeah, so. Yeah, she's also a badass. Well, yeah. Tipper was brought on to help investigate the ships and their failures. She posited that the welds might not be the issue. The issue is probably rooted in the steel used in production. She demonstrated that the steel used act more like brittle cast iron instead of ductile steel when subjected to the same temperatures of the Atlantic. She came up with an industry-accepted test, now called the Tipper Test, that can determine the brittleness of steel at various temperatures. She retired from Cambridge in 1960 and died in 1995 at the age of 101. While the science and engineering community recognized the great advancement she found early in her career, she will be best remembered for solving the problem of why Allied ships were sinking in World War II. That's awesome! Mm -hmm. Also another long-living lady. Oh, mm -hmm. That's really cool. So, two badass ladies and one scumbag. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I had two badasses and one slightly less badass. <laughs> and one guy who knew how to go... Knew how to cut people in half with his urine. That only works if we keep that part in. <laughs> I'm not Superman, but I played him in a porno. <laughs> That's a good pickup line. You should use that. I never did that, though. Doesn't matter, Michael. Everything's on Pornhub. There's got to be somebody out there that looks kind of like you. <laughs> Just for when you're picking up ladies at the bar. Uh -huh. <laughs> the way you do, you know, every Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> 
No, I don't have notables because that's just giving away other stuff. Do you have anything else? Uh, no, unfortunately I do not. Um, I do have that. Uh, next time I think we'll try to nail it down a little bit more and so just do something broad. <laughs> yeah, I think people's a little bit too broad. But it's weird. Mine could have been like a World War II sort of... You definitely had a theme. Theme. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, you didn't. Except I didn't pick anybody scummy. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, then are you good? Uh, yeah, I think I'm good. Okay, well, th- thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void. Found on the Free Music Archive, CCBY license. Thanks for listening.